I, I want to invite everyone to open your Bibles to the book of Genesis. Uh, uh, for those of you who are new or um, uh, are visiting with us, we are we preach expositionally, which means we preach through books of the Bible, and we're currently preaching through Genesis together. And today brings us to Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17. This week I read a really interesting article about the, the trend that's happening with uh, what parents are now naming boy names. Uh, the author joked that when it comes to girls that if it's a word, it can be a girl's name. So these are the names that the article itself mentioned. Genesis, Serenity, Promise, Legacy, Treasure, and Egypt have all been used for girls' names um, in the past or in the present. And so, you know, lamp, I don't know, whatever. If it's a word, it'll be a girl's name. And boy names used to always, they, they for a long time, they followed the traditional, typical boy name. Andrew, Greg, Michael, Matt, Sam, Chris, those kinds of things, just typical boy names. Uh, but more and more, parents are going for action-oriented names. Here's a sample of what parents are naming their boys, this current trend, all right? Get ready for this. Angler, camper, tracker, trapper, catcher, driver, fielder, racer, sailor, striker, wheeler, breaker, roper, trotter, wrangler, lancer, shooter, slayer, soldier, tracer, trooper, blazer, brewer, charger, dodger, laker, pacer, packer, raider, Ranger, Steeler, Warrior, Dreamer, Jester, and Rocker. Preacher doesn't seem to have made that list. Please don't name your kid Preacher. The author goes on to uh, make some conclusions or draw some conclusions. Uh, and she wrote that when parents choose names that reflect an action, they're saying something about who they hope their child becomes. Many parents name their children with a subconscious hope that they live up to their name. In other words, uh, they want their children to become something. These names reflect the hope that these people will become something special because of a unique identity. That's what these parents want for their kids, to have a unique and distinctive identity. God does some naming in this chapter too in, in Genesis 17. He, he renames both Abram and Sarai. Uh, he doesn't name them anything like stellar or fruitful or warrior. But he changes Abram's name to Abraham and Sarai to Sarah. And God, uh, as he renames uh, Abram and Sarai, he gives a new command that goes along with it. Abraham and everyone who is born of him must be circumcised. Abraham and his descendants are now marked off as a new and unique and distinct tribe. And God's aim is exactly that. To give his people a distinct identity and otherness that will set them apart from the world. Doesn't happen, right? Their uniqueness doesn't happen through being strong. And it doesn't happen through them being amazing people. And it doesn't happen because they're ahead above the rest. It happens through rightly relating to God and right, rightly responding to His Word. 
That's where this unique identity happens. Rightly relating to God and rightly responding to His Word. And, and as we read Genesis 17, I want you to notice a really simple outline. Uh, because at first it goes, uh, Ab- God reaffirms His covenant to Abraham. Then God gives the sign of circumcision. This outline repeats itself in the second half of chapter 17. God affirms His covenant through Isaac. Then Abraham applies circumcision. So it has an A-B-A-B pattern. Pretty simple. And what's important about that is that through this we see three elements that give God's people a distinct identity. Three elements that give God's people an otherness. So let's read. We're going to read the whole chapter. Genesis 17, starting in verse 1. I'm sorry, it's not on the screen today. Yes, no, it's okay. No, it's, yeah, it's okay. It's not on the screen today, so follow along your Bibles or, or, or listen. All right, verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face. And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So right there we have A, reaffirming covenant, B, circumcision, and now it repeats itself. And God said to Abram, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abram fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abram said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son, and all those born in his house were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was ninety-nine years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskins. 
And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. James Clear, an author of a book called Atomic Habits, wrote about a man who uses a wheelchair. And someone asked this man if it was difficult being confined all the time. The man in the wheelchair responded, I'm not confined to my wheelchair, I'm, I'm liberated by it. If it wasn't for my wheelchair, I'd be bedbound and never able to leave my house. This man's identity in the wheelchair did not start with his disability. It started somewhere else, and that dictated his entire outlook on life. In the same way, in the same way, our identity must start somewhere, and it must begin with God. A.W. Tozer said, What comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Our identity starts here and flows from here, and that's the first element of our identity, a specific God. This chapter begins with God appearing to Abram. And he doesn't start by telling Abram how awesome Abram is. And he doesn't start by saying what Abram should do. God starts by declaring who he is, who God is. What does he say? I am God Almighty. In Hebrew, that's El Shaddai. And it's interesting that it's that this comes right after the passage where Hagar names God. She, she names God, you are a God of seeing. And so just as God revealed himself, his character to Hagar, we're to see this as God continuing to reveal himself. Remember, we have thousands of years in a complete Bible to tell us who God is. Abraham doesn't have that advantage. So God is revealing that to Abraham. But, but why? Why God Almighty? One of Willa's favorite songs to sing right now is My God is So Big. You guys know that song? My God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. Yes, for you. Yeah, exactly. Now, when something scary happens, like a thunder or a loud noise, it would be one thing to tell her, it's okay because mommy and daddy are here. But it's another thing entirely to try to get her to believe that God is so big and so strong and so mighty. That she doesn't need to be afraid because He is strong and mighty. In, in other words, it's one thing to sing about God's power and another to trust it. In the same way, Abram must know who this God is who reveals Himself and makes all of these promises. You guys saw that. Abraham laughs. Because the promises are so ridiculous. He's a hundred years old and he has this God who promises him the son who's waited like two decades now to do anything about it. And, and then the, the promises get wilder and wilder. At first, it's just you will be a great nation. Now it's you will have a son and many nations will come from you. Abraham laughs. And so God Almighty reveals himself to Abraham. Don't underestimate who I am. In other words, Abraham and his offspring must learn to relate rightly to a specific God. 
Everybody knows the Ten Commandments. But what we often don't start with, with the Ten Commandments, is probably one of the most important parts. He, when God gives the Ten Commandments, He doesn't launch right into giving them the rules. He doesn't launch right into the commands. God starts by declaring who He is. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I am your God. I have rescued you. Therefore, now obey. The relationship is established before the commands are given. In verses 7 and 8, we have this really important um, kind of phrase that God uses all throughout His covenants. So He says, I will make an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your offspring after you. And then in verse 8, I will be their God. If you read the Old Testament over and over again, what does God say? They will be my people and I will be their God. In other words, Israel must understand who God is in their relationship to Him. They can't obey apart from understanding that. If Israel is to follow God correctly, they must relate to God rightly as the one true Creator God who rescued them from the power of Egypt. They have to understand that first. Otherwise, their obedience, no matter how meticulous it is, is wrong. It's like having a good teacher. Right? Think of your, your favorite teacher. You had elementary school, high school, college, or whatever. If you know they care about you, and if they take the time to encourage you, that can make all the difference, can it? What this means is that you cannot be in a relationship with God until you relate rightly to Him. The question for you is, do you know God? Truly know Him? Intimately? Deeply? Is He just kind of a a thought or a concept in your mind, or are you in a relationship with J.I. Packer wrote four evidences that we truly know God, and and it's helpful to reflect on these, whether, whether we really know God in light of these. Those who know God have great energy for God. Those who know God have great, great thoughts of God. Those who know God show great boldness for God. For those who know God have great contentment in God. Do you know God? The beauty of His character. Do you look at His his justice and His mercy and His goodness and His holiness and His righteousness and see them as beautiful? You know the greatness of his of his power. When when you're most afraid, does his power comfort you? Do you know the magnificence of what it means that God is God in three persons, that he is Father, Son, and Spirit? Our identity must come from rightly relating to and knowing a specific God. Second, our identity comes from being a part of a specific nation. 
specific nation. In this chapter, God is making promises uh, about two realms. And these two realms define the, the identity of the nation of Israel. Okay, These two things are central to what it means to be the nation of Israel. Not, I'm talking about in, in Scripture, okay? First is family and the second is land. Family and land. First, we'll, we'll talk about family. Alright? The, the identity of the nation of Israel, what, what God in, in this promise is showing is that their identity is shaped by certain offspring from a certain family. So first, it's descended from Abraham. But not just Abraham. You can't just be descended from Abraham. You have to be descended from Isaac, specifically. Now here's why that's important, okay? Listen, being descended from Isaac was central to their identity, and that reality was meant to shape them as the people of God. So, verse 4, God's promising, you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. Verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and, and kings shall come from you. Which, by the way, um, many places in Scripture before we ever get to Saul and the Israelites demanding a king, right? Their wanting a king was not the problem. It's, it's, they wanted a king just like the world. God had always planned for kings to come from uh, Abraham. And, and anyway, verse 7, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring. So the covenant does not happen apart from this offspring that God is promising. And this is seen when God reiterates those promises in relation to Sarah. I don't know if you guys caught the parallels. He renames Abraham and Abram to Abraham, and then he renames Sarai to Sarah. He's talking about blessing Abraham and making him into great nations, and then he's doing the same for Abraham. He just narrows the focus. I will give you, verse 16, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she will become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. The nation that God is promising will come through Sarah's son. These promises are extravagant. Isaac should not exist. Abraham is 99, Sarah is 90. Isaac, by earthly standards, worldly ability, should not exist, but he exists entirely by grace. And that is exactly why Israel should be shaped by Him. Because they should be a people shaped by grace. That they owe their entire existence by the grace of God. They did not bring themselves about. They did not triumph by their own power. God brings them about. At this point, Abraham he begs God, let Ishmael take the mantle. Because right now, I'm hearing these over-promises and I just, I, I don't believe them. He laughs because they're so ridiculous. But God refuses. No, no, no. The nation that will come for you cannot get their identity in relation to Ishmael, but in re relation to Isaac. Actually, actually, that's, that's not the only thing. The, uh, another thing is that Ishmael, Ishmael, if, if he's going to stay in the covenant, if he's going to receive the blessings... Of God, he must submit to his younger brother. 
he can only find Ishmael's true identity is in relation to his younger brother. And that's crazy. In this culture, in the ancient Near East, the older brother got the inheritance. He got the blessings. He got the, the mantle of the family. Families formed identities around the, the firstborn son. But in Scripture, God is always subverting human, the way humans normally operate. So, so the point I'm trying to make is the family of Isaac was meant to profoundly shape their identity. Our identity is shaped by family too. Christians. Not a biological or a physical family. My last name is Covington, and I've talked about how for the Covingtons, that is a big deal. Uh, and my, me and my brother are only the last two boy Covingtons, so it's on us to carry the Covington name, and we both have girls, so it's not looking good. But that's not what's most important about me, being a Covington. And in fact, being a Covington should not be what shapes me the most. Biology should not be what shapes our identity. The Constitution should not be what shapes our identity. Something else must fundamentally shape our identity. This is what makes Jesus' words so incredibly radical. In Mark 3, people tell him, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are here to see you. Well, if you're, if you're a good, obedient Jew, you're like, whoa, my family... Honor your father and mother, right? But Jesus brushes them off. And he asks, who are my mother and brothers? Whoever does God's will is my mother and brother and sister. In his day, this would have been seen as like a violation of the fifth commandment. But Jesus isn't violating the fifth commandment. He's redefining who true family is. Being a part of this new spiritual family in Christ should shape our identity. Far more than our upbringing. Psychologists love to talk about nurture, right? Nurtured in your homes. And that's important. And I can't discount that. I don't want to discount that. But far more than that should be our family in Christ. Physical families will focus on passing wealth. This Christ family focuses on passing on wisdom. The wisdom of Christ. Physical families focus on gathering together as much as possible. This family focuses on gathering to worship. Physical families focus on preserving tradition. Spiritual family focuses on preserving Scripture. And not that any of that is bad. All right? Scripture has a lot to say about how we relate to our physical families. But here's the point I'm trying to make. Some people want to shape the spiritual Christ family through the lens of their physical family. How they were raised becomes the filter through which they see the church. When it should be the other way around. The glasses we wear should be our Christ family, Christ kingdom, together affecting everything else, including our physical family. Family. Right? The second one was land that shapes identity. 
I'm currently reading a book about Lewis and Clark. And, and land was central to the identity of early America. And it's funny, I was reading. Uh, one reason why it was central is because, especially Virginian farmers, were really bad farmers. Like, they, they wasted so much, especially because they grew tobacco. They wore out the land so quickly that in order to keep producing tobacco, they would need more land because the land wouldn't be able to produce any crops after that. So they were really bad, so they need more land. But, 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 especially in Thomas Jefferson's belief, America could not be a nation without land from sea to shining sea. It, it drove early America. Land is also central to the identity of Israel. He promises, he's promised it before, and he reiterates that in verse 8. I will give to you and your offspring the land of Canaan. And, and God's not giving them this piece of land because it's the best piece of land anywhere in the world. I mean, geographically speaking, it's, it's pretty good, right? It's not like you don't go there and you're like, whoa, this place is just great. It's, it's kind of like deserty. There's some fertile soil. I mean, I'm just trying to make the point. It's not because this piece of land was great. It was actually because it was a, a channel. If you look at a map where the nation of Israel sits, especially in the ancient world, it's sat at the hub of all pathways that would go from north to south and south to north. If you were trying to get to the mega power of Egypt, you had to pass through Israel. If you had to go from Egypt to the mega powers in the north or even over to the um, to further east, you had to pass through Israel. It's, it's the hub of, of the internet. Trafficking, all traffic goes through there. It was central because it was meant to shape them as the people of God to show the world, this is what we look like. You can see us. For Christians, our land also gives us a distinct identity. But it's not any land that we can see. It's a promised land. Not the promised land, a promised land. It, it remains hidden from us. We're waiting for an entirely new creation. If we listen if we truly believe we are going to inherit a whole new creation, that should certainly shape how we think and what we do. Don't you agree? The writer of Hebrews thought so. And one of, in my opinion, one of the most radical and challenging passages in Scripture he wrote, sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison who broke the law and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves, listen, because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. able to let go of our greatest and dearest earthly possessions because we were so convinced that we had a better and lasting possession to come. How different would Christianity in America look if we were convinced of that? Think, think of what you most prize what you feel most threatened will be taken from you and to have that attitude. 
we are free to lose dear, great possession here because we have an eternal possession being kept for us. Friends, this is how being a part of a specific nation shapes our identity. Not a biological nation, not a physical nation, not a nation with land right now, but one that gives us far more hope and far more joy and one that shapes our identity far more than any physical possession ever could. A distinct identity. In Africa, there are many ways that the people show what tribe they're a part of. Uh, some of it is, is dress. Uh, maybe some of you have seen like the rings like that go on the lady's neck. And it's, it's odd. Um, right? uh, but often, what they'll do in many parts of Africa is when you're an infant, they will cut you. They'll cut you on the cheek in some way. Or one mark, two marks, whatever, on your forehead. And that cut leaves a permanent scar. And that scar tells everyone what tribe you're a part of. This is exactly how circumcision was to function. It was meant to mark you off as the people of God. But instead of a physical mark to show the world that we belong to God as Christians, it's our character and our behavior. So we come to the last element that gives us our distinct identity, specific conduct. Specific conduct. In this chapter, God is not just just reaffirming His covenant with Abraham, right? He made His promises, initial covenant, chapter 12, established that covenant in chapter 15, and He's reiterating them again in these great promises. And He's not just doing that. He's making a new humanity. That's why He's renaming them, right? He's giving them a new identity because He wants to make a new kind of human. A human who will obey Him. Human who will reflect his just character to the world. And that's why he puts obligations on them. He, he requires them to be circumcised. Right? You can't, God can't just be like, okay, Abram, your name has changed. Now go live how you want. No, if you're going to be a people of God, you have to show the world what God looks like. So verses 9 and 11, as for you, you shall keep my covenant. You and your offspring after you throughout their generations. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And that shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So it's marking off the people of God. They're becoming a tribe. A new tribe. And and it's also a a reminder that life can only come from God. That's what circumcision was supposed to signify. Listen, the bloody marking of the body parts that produce life are meant to be a constant reminder of where life comes from. And if only God can bring life, then He only can bring the promised seed from chapter 3. Circumcision was supposed to be a reminder and a hope that only God can produce what we humans try to do on our own. It's an obligation, yes, but it's an obligation built on trust that life is found in God. Verse 14, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So listen, if you are not cut off in the obedience of circumcision, you will be cut off from the people of God. See the play on words there? 
And that's for Israel. Listen, that's for Israel because this outward adornment is central to Jewish identity. The, the vast majority of the laws given to Moses are deal with outward adornment. Right? About what kind of clothes you can wear, what material they can be made of, what, what you can eat and what you can drink, what you can't eat, what you can't drink, what you can do. Why? Why was all of that important? It was meant to demonstrate to the world that they are the people of God and show the world what it means to live under the rule of God. So if you look throughout history, the Jewish people have always been seen as weird. Right? That's why we have met like horrors like the, the Holocaust and anti-Semitism. Uh, they were blamed for uh, they're blamed for fires in different cities. It's because the foods that they eat and their cleanliness standards, dress and their hair, it all goes back to the law of Moses. Physical, outward adornments. But where the nation of Israel was marked by outward adornment, the new people of God in Christ are marked by the inward adornment of the Holy Spirit. Look, being a Christian is not about what you eat. Being a Christian is not about what you drink. It's not about what you wear or where you go. Or whether you grow green beans in your backyard or buy them at the supermarket. These slacks that I'm wearing don't make me a better Christian than the Christian who sags his pants. You talk all day about sagging pants. I wish they wouldn't. But I'm not a better Christian than they are. That's not what makes them a Christian. And certainly, we should listen to what Scripture says about those things. Right? Those things are contained in, in love for Christ and love for others. But those aren't what make you a Christian. Long hair, short hair. Listen, in our own culture, we've had, uh, um, we've made outward adornment the um, litmus test of whether someone's a Christian, haven't we? Dancing, long hair, piercings, tattoos. We've made outward adornment the standard. When in reality, it's adornment by the Spirit. What makes you a Christian is holiness brought about by a radical new renewal of the Holy Spirit. That's what makes you a Christian. That affects some of the outward stuff. You don't go, I mean, you don't go like flashing people and stuff. Okay, you, you, you dress to honor Christ, but that's what's most important is the heart. Not the outward circumcision, the circumcision of the heart. Paul wrote in Romans 8, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. And Paul is helpful. How do we know we have the Spirit of Christ? Because He gives us a specific kind of conduct. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live, because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. This is precisely why Christians will never truly fit in with the world. Listen, I'm all about being winsome. I don't think we should be t like offensive jerks. We should be winsome, we should be loving, we should be compassionate, but we need to always accept that we, we won't fit in. Growing in holiness means you won't be a part of the cool crowd, whether that's at school or at work or a social group. Whereas the people of Israel looked weird in their outward adornments, we look weird to the world because of 
holiness. Don't worry about being cool. Don't worry about being accepted. Because those things have measly returns anyway. I, I tried to be cool in high school, and the coolest people I knew in high school are not cool now. It's like that time I, I opened this old can of, of planter's peanuts, thinking I could have a snack. And I didn't realize how old this can was. I opened it, and there's moths and dust and maggots in there. Being cool and accepted has measly returns, but being holy has, has infinite returns. And being holy means following the way of Jesus. Mark 15 shows us what that looks like. In the same way, the chief priests and teachers of the law mocked Him among themselves. So even for folks who are very religious, you'll be rejected if you're following Christ. He saved others, they said, but He can't save Himself. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And, and Mark adds this, those crucified with Him also heaped insults on Him. Now that's not to say Mark is denying the, the thief who repents there at the end, but the picture that Mark is trying to paint is that Jesus was all alone. Culture rejected Him. His disciples didn't stand by Him. And if you've been isolated by your family, isolated by friends, you might know a little what this was like. He was rejected. He was an outcast. Unacceptable. Deplorable. It is this Jesus who existed eternally as the Son of God. The Son of God who knew only the Father's infinite affections and heaven's highest praises. The Son of God who was perfect in His holiness, who needed nothing and needed nobody. The Son of God who became man. The Son who never knew thirst became thirsty in a desert as a man. The Son who in holiness never knew temptation, but was tempted as a man. The Son, who was adored by angels, was spit upon as a man. The Son, who is the fountain of life, was crucified as a man. And it is through the Son who became man, Jesus Christ, that we have access to our specific God. It is through the Son that we have entrance into our new nation. And it is by the Son that we live in holy conduct. In Him, through Him, by Him. And this is why we do communion. To renew our, our faith in the identity that we have in Christ. That we, we relate to this God. A God whose wrath was directed at His own Son instead of you. We take communion to, to feast on, on, on the flesh and the blood of Christ that we might have a distinct identity, a people of holy forgiveness. Jesus, in John 6, Himself said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink, his blood, you have no life in you. 
Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. Celebration, or the Lord's Supper is a celebration. It's a celebration that the body of the Son of God was freely broken for you. You are a sinner. That a sinner who, apart from God, would go on in your sin. Apart from God, you love sin. Apart from God, you are nothing but wrath. But Jesus, whose body was freely broken for you, was broken for all your sin. So that now, in Christ, you carry not an ounce of wrath from God. Not an ounce of anger. His body was broken for you. His blood was spilled to bring you into a new covenant. To give you a new identity. That you will be profoundly shaped by the God who was and is and is is to come. That your identity would be profoundly shaped by this nation that we find ourselves in, in this room. That our identity would be profoundly shaped by the Spirit in us who causes us to live in holiness. This meal is not for perfect Christians. Our hearts have gone astray. Our desires have gone astray. Our our words have been unholy. Our actions. This is a time of, of repentance and renewal that we would feast on Christ by faith. But I ask you, I beg you, don't take these in an unworthy manner. Don't take these nonchalantly. Don't take these if you have been living in non-repentant sin. Rather, take this moment to cry out to God for mercy. But in all cases, it's not me who invites you to this table. It's Christ. Christ is inviting you to come to feast on Him by faith. Let's do that this morning. When I invite our deacon, John, up here. And what we're going to do is I'm going to give a plate to John. We're going to pass out the bread, but before you take it, I want us to take it together. I'll offer a prayer uh, before we pass it out, and and I'll read Scripture, and and we'll take it together. So let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we come to simple bread and juice this morning, but it is so much more profound than that. Just as, as circumcision was meant to be so much more profound, this physical appearance is much more profound. We set apart these elements that You would be glorified in them, that You would be glorified by our taking of them and in our repentance and our faith. Lord Jesus, in this room, we don't deserve love for You. Love for You being the highest, best, joyous reality imaginable. We don't deserve that, but... Lord Jesus, by Your mercy, give us love for You. A love for You and and to enjoy being loved by You. We pray this in Your name. Amen.